write some notes as we go along. If you're a guest with us for the first time, I want to welcome you. Glad that you're here. You can take a moment and fill out your connection card and uh, drop it at one of the baskets at the exit. And there's a gift for you uh, on your way out. I don't know how many of you um, have a favorite TV series that you watch religiously, right? So like you DVR it and uh, as soon as you get home and you've got a spare moment, you're, you're watching that television show. Uh, I have a couple of them that, I, that I, I love to watch. So I, you know, I've got my DVR going and, and inevitably whenever a television series comes to the end of its season, they always leave you with a cliffhanger, right? So something's going to happen, something dramatic, uh, because they're trying to, you know, pull you back in for the beginning of the next season. And oftentimes, maybe a month or two months, three months may go by before that season begins. And so it's just kind of like a teaser uh, that's going to, you know, perk your interest to say, you know what, I just can't wait till the next season comes out. Well, as we've been watching the drama of, of God's movement unfold each week in the book of Acts, we have noted that for every action of God, there is a reaction by Satan. And so Satan is looking for a way that he can put a stop to this movement of God in which God is performing the miraculous and signs and wonders and people are being saved by the thousands because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God unto salvation. And certainly God is moving in a very powerful way. So Satan rises up. He tries to stop the church from pressure and persecution on the outside. Uh, that wasn't working, so he moves to the inside and he tries to use division uh, in order to stop this movement of God. And when we ended chapter 7 of the book of Acts, Stephen is the first Christian martyr. He is the first one who has laid his faith on the line to the degree that it's going to cost him his life. Now, that's the cliffhanger because we're not going to pick up in chapter 8 until May, okay? So, but what I do want to do is, is to look at this. How will the church respond? How's the church responding? It, are people going to think to themselves, you know what? If it's going to cost me my life to follow Jesus, um, sorry, I'm out. I'm out of here. This is, this, is way, this is asking way too much of me to literally lay down my life for the cause of Christ, for the cause of the gospel. And so uh, what I want to do today is kind of pick up from the beginning of the, se the sermon from last week, and I want to add a fourth element as to why I believe the church... The early church was so impactful and, and so uh, used of God in their day and time. And you'll recall the first one I gave you was that they were all in. Like they were like the, a group of trained Navy SEALs who had their assignments and they would fight to the end in order to fulfill the commission that Jesus had given them. So they were just all in. They weren't dabbling in this, they were all in. Secondly, is because they astonished the Roman culture. It was the early church, the early believers who were going out and they were tending to the poor and uh, they were feeding the poor and helping the poor, and they were helping those uh, Roman citizens who were sick, and, and the Roman culture you know, just didn't want to deal with them or do anything with them. And they were the ones who were stepping up, and they were adopting as their own children that those in Rome said, you know what, they, they are not fit for us. Uh, we do not deem them to be uh, fit for our family. Therefore, they would just you know, 
put them beside a roadway, throw them in a dumpster, whatever. That was just the culture in which the early church found themselves. And so the early Christian uh, believers were gathering up those children who were forsaken and they were raising them as their own. And even the Roman emperors had to give notice to how the early church was ministering to the needs of the Roman citizens even better than Rome herself. And the third reason is because these individuals were walked, walking with the filling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And I've had you underline that all throughout the book of Acts. How many times we read that phrase, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, which means they were yielded to, they were controlled by the Spirit, they lived their life in dependency upon the Spirit, expecting Him to speak, inspecting Him to move, expecting Him through surrendered hearts that He would do the signs and the wonders and the miracles that would grab the attention of those who were a part of the Roman Empire. And so Jesus had taught them to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus, uh, he is the head of the church, we're the body, and the body simply responds to the directives of the head. And so Jesus had commissioned his church, he had empowered his church through the Holy Spirit, and he said, now that you've received the power of the Holy Spirit, I want you to go and make disciples. And by the way, God has never recanted that commission. It is the same commission that we have for our day and time. Now, here's the fourth key and the title of this message that I find in the early church is that they were sold out to the gospel. They were sold out to the gospel. Now, you would think that most people, Christian believers, those who walk with Jesus would be sold out to the gospel, but that is not necessarily always true. Uh, they believed the gospel. They believed that truly the gospel was not only the power of God unto salvation, but salvation meant more than just spiritual healing and connection with God. It went to the emotional healing and deliverance, and it went to physical healing, and it went to demonic deliverance if that was necessary in a person's life. They, they believed in the, the, uh, the, the kingdom encompassing of the entire gospel of Jesus that is found through his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. And so when we read through the book of Acts, and there are many places you could go, uh, but as we study through the book of Acts up to this point in chapter 7, uh, you will notice that constantly when the, the disciples are questioned, hey, what, by what name are you doing this? By what power are you doing this? It's in the name of Jesus, right? It's by the power of Christ that we do these things. And every opportunity that was given to Peter or others, they were standing up and they were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to their countrymen. And they were proclaiming that Jesus, yes, he was Messiah, he did die, he was buried, he was resurrected, he's ascended into heaven, and now he is in his glorified state of being, and it is through the gospel of Christ that you experience healing and forgiveness and restoration in your life. They were not fuzzy about the gospel. They constantly were proclaiming, whenever they were threatened to shut up, to not proclaim the name of Jesus any longer. They refused to back down. They refused to shut up. They simply said, listen, we cannot stop talking about what we have seen, what we have heard, and what we have experienced. And I've, I've just uh, noticed in, in many of our lives, uh, rather than we, we will not stop talking, we don't even start talking. Uh, so they were just fired up about the gospel because they believed that it is the solution to the world's problems because it is the power of the gospel that changes the human heart and it's the human heart that is the source of the problem in the world. 
It doesn't matter what you think about guns or not think about guns. Whatever gun control you put in, it's the human heart. And so the gospel comes to bear on the human heart. And so they just, they just knew the importance of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. For there, as, as Peter said, there is no, under, no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. Now, generic spirituality does not save you. Let me say that again. Generic spirituality does not save you. A lot of what has happened in the church over many years is we've gotten into this generic spirituality in that we go out and we serve people. We love on people, right? So we use the word splash, which means show people love and share him. Well, we're all about showing the love, but we tend to neglect the share him part, right? So, you know, I can love on our city. You know, we can go out in groups and we can paint fences and we can, you know, clean up schoolyards and people's homes and, and we can uh, help repair their homes. We can do all kinds of loving acts of kindness in the hearts and the lives of people. But if we never bring to bear in their lives the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we have missed the point. That's generic spirituality. And so, you know, that's a wonderful thing that we would love people in such a way that we would use our giftedness and our resources to minister to the hearts and the lives of people. You can service people out of love, but if you never bring to bear the gospel into that relationship, they can die without Christ and spend eternity separated from the Father. You have got to be more specific. You have to talk about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how that can affect the life of the individual with whom you have the relationship with. Now, what the disciples understood is that there's only one way to the Father, which always gets pushed back, right? People say, well, uh, if you say that Jesus is the only way, because they believe what Jesus said, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one can come to the Father except by me, John 14, 6. The disciples believe that, the apostles believe that, they preach that, they taught that, And so whenever you say that uh, to people that, hey, Jesus is the only way that you can come in connection to a relationship with God the Father, you're always going to get pushed back, right? Because people say, but that's so narrow-minded. That's so exclusive. And exclusivity is the idea that Jesus is the only way to connect with God of the universe, that he is the narrow route, you know, he's the the narrow path, the, the narrow gate, and his name is the only way we can connect to God. Well, if that is true, then that means by default, if I don't come to the Father through his son, Jesus Christ, then I'm not making connection with God, and eventually when I die, I will be eternally separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. And so people push back and say, well, listen, for you to say that Jesus is the only way, that the gospel is the only way, that is, that is narrow-minded, that is bigoted, that is hateful. That is offensive to me. And so the American mind has a framework of thinking that says, listen, as far as I'm concerned, everybody's right. Every religion is right. We are all about our different ways to God. We all have different ways, but in the end, everybody In the end, everybody's going to be right. As long as you're sincere in your faith, you're going to make it to heaven. So that's the mindset. That is the culture in which we live. So if atheism says 
that there is no God and there, you know, all religions are false. And exclusivity says, or inclusion says, uh, well, no, everybody's right. And we're all just traveling our different paths, but we're all going to end up in the same destination. And then exclusivity comes in and says, no, we can't all be right. Uh, somebody's got to be wrong. And so if the gospel is right, if we say, well, the gospel is right, that means that not every other religion can be right. And so that is where you get the pushback. That's where people rise up in, and they're offended by that. And so you might say, well, uh, but you don't understand. It, 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 the other religions, you know, I, I've been a part of other religions, and it just feels good. It just feels right. Uh, Wow. You cannot go through life saying, I'm only going to believe things that really feel good because there are a lot of things in life that are right and true, but they don't feel so good. You know, if my kids, um, if, I, if I left it up to my children when they were growing up, uh, they would have eaten ice cream three times a day, right? Forget about the vegetables, forget about anything else, just give me the ice cream. Of course, they would have diabetes by the time they were 18 years old, uh, but given the fact, I should have said, you know what, uh, I don't want to fringe upon your rights because you know that feels right to you, and, and therefore, I'm not going to make you eat any vegetables, I'm not going to make you eat anything that you don't like because, after all, uh, I want you to feel good about yourself. We have to be very careful not to allow a cultural worldview by which, which, by the way, is supported and pushed by the evil one who is the god of this universe, and it's pushed through um, radio and TV and billboards and magazines and books in many, many different ways uh, that says, in essence, like, if, if something feels right to you, then it must be right. All right, so don't let anybody tell you that if it feels you know, feels right, it can't be right because it, that's just the way it is. That, that is the cultural worldview in which you and I live in. So there's no absolute truth. Uh, let your conscience be your guide. If it feels good, indulge in it because if it's right for you, it's right for you. It may not be right for me, but it is, it, it's, if it's right for you, it's okay and it's right for you. And so um, I had somebody say to me one time in a discussion, why is it that you as a parent and a grandparent, um, why, why do you tell your children Bible stories? And why do you pray with your children? And why do you, you know, sit around table and have discussions with your kids about the Word of God? Uh, you're brainwashing your children. Uh, I hope so. Because the alternative is, the alternative is to allow the cultural worldview of our day and time to brainwash my kids. So if I'm not careful, and if I'm not the one who is pouring into them what needs to be poured into them, then my children will be brainwashed, and um, because it's my job, I, I don't want them to think that Sex in the City and Grey's Anatomy and Beyonce and Kim Kardashian, uh, that, they, that their worldview on sexuality and womanhood and power and how you live your life and what's really important, what is not, and how you ought to view and how you ought not to view, I don't want that pushed on my kids. I want to, as a father, it is my responsibility to pour into my children's minds the word of God. Somebody's going to do it. The question is you, or are you going to let society do it? So 
the worldview of our culture is there is a God who is all-loving and accepts everyone just the way you are so long as you are sincere in your search for him. So if you want to search him through Buddhism, you want to search him through Hinduism, you want to search him through Scientology, you want to search him through whatever religion you, you select, it's okay. And, and for you, for me, uh, to say to them, hey, but the gospel is the truth of God. It is the only way of salvation. That you're going to get pushback, right? So people are going to think of you as being narrow-minded, bigoted, and offensive, and even downright hateful. That's just the world in which we, we live you know that every religion sets your feet on a path, and every path has a destination. And the question is, what is that destination? And of course, people say uh, we all end up in the same place when it's all said and done. And what, what bothers me is not that the world thinks that, but even within the church, that mindset has begun to creep in. I think it's why we don't share the gospel. It's why we're not vocal about the gospel. It's not why we're sold out to the gospel. Because in our minds, we're thinking, you know what? In the end, it's probably all going to work out. You know, God's just going to work it all out, and it's all going to work itself out. And, you know, these sincere people, surely, uh, and, you know, they're going to make it, and it's all going to be, you know, we'll all sing kumbaya in heaven when we get there. If you want to understand inclusivism, Consider the scene from the comedy movie Talladega Nights, the ballad of, of Ricky Bobby, right? All right, so those of you have not seen the movie, Ricky Bobby is a race car driver, and uh, he has had a crash uh, during a race, and he's thinking he's on fire, so he runs out on the track you know, in his underwear, and, and he's crying out, and he says, help me, Jesus, help me, Jewish God, help me, Allah, help me, Tom Cruise, help me, Oprah Winfrey, uh, use your witchcraft to, to get the fire off of me, help me. And so why is, he, why is he appealing to all these different gods? Why is he appealing to all these different people, all these different religions? Well, in his mind, it's like, you know what? Hey, I don't want to hedge my bet and put all my apples in one basket. You know, there's multiple gods out there. There's multiple religions. I think I'll just like, take a little bit of all of them and just pull it together just in case one has you know, more truth over the other and, and, and God's going to put the fire out. So one God doesn't necessarily exclude the others, so don't limit yourself to just one. And so this concept, this concept has its roots in Hinduism and Eastern philosophy and has largely been adopted in Western culture. It became found in a lot of popular versions, okay? So let me just give you three quotes. The first one is from a rabbi. Here's what he says. I'm absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is Anything different than spiritual racism. Here's what Gandhi said. My position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. Here's another quote. One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. And that's from uh, the theologian Oprah Winfrey. You see, inclusivism has its basic premise that all religions are truth, or at least partially true, and have value. And in our culture, again, it's considered narrow-minded and judgmental to believe anything else. And so, how do we respond? How do we respond to the theology of Ricky Bobby? 
How do we get sold out to the gospel to the point we're willing to lay down our lives if necessary? It's probably not going to happen in the United States. But you may have to lay down something in order to share the gospel. To say that all religions, religious beliefs are equal and true is what's called metaphysical pluralism. While I would fight for the right for anyone to believe what they want to believe, it's the American freedom. All right? If you, it, metaphysical pluralism, if, if it's believed and accepted, uh, it is a recipe for disaster. Listen, Christianity is not the only exclusive religion. Every religion is exclusive in some form or fashion. Let's just take Islam, all right? So Islam um, teaches that there is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. In Islam, heaven is a paradise uh, for sensual pleasure for some, and hell is for those who oppose Allah and reject the teachings of Muhammad. And so the only way to get to heaven is to convert to Islam, which means you have to believe in the six main doctrines, practice their five duties of Islam, and at least... One time in your life, you have to make that journey to Mecca. Buddhism is another example. Buddhism began with Siddhartha Gautama, who was a Hindu, who rebelled against Hinduism because he didn't like their caste system or the authority of their sacred scripture. And so he, he believed that all these to be unnecessary for people to experience nirvana or take atheism that rejects all religions and it rejects the fact that even God, that there's anything beyond this material world. It's impossible to find a worldview of any religion that is not some, in some form or fashion exclusive. So it's not only to Christianity. But Christianity comes along and says, hey, uh, we believe that God had a design for the world and God has a design for your life. And that when man chose to exit outside of God's design, the Bible calls that sin. Sin always leads to brokenness. And the answer to your brokenness as you try to cope with brokenness and you develop all these coping mechanisms only to find out that they do not work and they cannot help you, they cannot deliver you, then Jesus is the gospel, is about Christ. And so God's answer to your brokenness is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the only way we can experience the gospel of Christ is to repent and believe. That's exactly what Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, Mark chapter 1. And when we believe the gospel, we have the ability to recover from our brokenness and to pursue this relationship with our Heavenly Father that enables us to live within God's design that keeps us from experiencing the brokenness of living outside of that design. All right, so that is the, the essence of the gospel. And some people say, well, uh, you know, all religions teach basically the same thing. When it comes to creation, when it comes to origin, when it comes to morality and evil and suffering and what happens after death, you know, all religions are basically the same. They teach the same thing. No, they don't. In fact, they are divergently different. If you were ever to put a comparison chart of all religions uh, when it comes to origin and creation and, and all down the line of religious beliefs, you will note that there is great diversity among religions out there in our world and time. And so if you're going to hold that line, then what about the religions of the ancient Ammonites who worshiped the god of Moloch? And they believed that it was uh, their right and responsibility to offer their children up as 
sacrifices to their God, and they would beat the drums loud enough so they could not hear the screams of the children as they were being, uh, as they were being martyred and, and drowned and beaten. Or what about Jim Jones, who came along and gra- you know, gathered a group of people, some 900 of them. He had all kinds of weird ideas about uh, you know, a lot of things, the world, God himself, and eventually convinced them to uh, believe his deranged ideas, and they committed suicide. They, they, they took the, their lives following his religion. And so, you know, we get it real dicey when we start talking about this. And so I'm just trying to, to, to um, really um, stimulate your thought process. That if you're going to be bold and if you're going to be sold out to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that a lot of times when you share the gospel, you will get pushback. You can expect it. It will happen because of the cultural worldview that has enveloped the mindset of Westerners. And so for me to come along and say, well, hey, uh, there's only one way. Whoa, wait a minute. All religions are basically the same. There's multiple ways. We're all trying to be sincere here. We're all trying to get our way to, you know, we all want to be in heaven when it's all said and done. And therefore, you know, every religion is equal in value. Or people will say, well, uh, that may be your truth, but it is not mine. Uh, So, which is not logical. Okay, so there is a thing called the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction is like this. If I were to select two of you and I would say, you can't see whether or not I have socks on, do you believe I have socks on? One of you says, yes, I believe you have socks on. And the other one says, no, I don't believe you have socks on. Well, guess what? Somebody's got to be wrong, right? So you can't both be right. So either I have socks on or I don't have socks on. And so you, you can... Take this in, in, in the same issue of when it comes to uh, world views and world religions. My worldview might be, like, let's say we're sitting around the dinner table, and I've got family over, and, and my Uncle Tom says, you know what my worldview is? He said, I believe that everybody are unicorns. I believe we're all unicorns, and, you know, there's going to come the day when we go to that big unicorn place in the sky. And, and, but nobody wants to offend Uncle Tom, right? We say, oh, you know, that's, that's a pretty good idea. You know, that's, uh, maybe we all are unicorns. And then somebody else says, well, you know, I, I, I'm not so sure I, I believe that, but I, I believe that, you know, and so they put out there on the table what it is that they believe, and everybody is is, uh, sharing what they believe. And at the end of it all, because nobody wants to offend anybody else in the family and cause any friction in the family, we say, you know what? I think we're all right. Let's just all, you know, just eat, drink, and be happy, and and just live with our own own moral views. Hmm. If our cultural moment says we we don't like exclusivism, uh, we got a problem. Because Christianity is exclusive. It exclusively says there is right and there is a wrong. Right? Atheism says there are, there, there are no religions. They're, 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 they're not needed because there's no God and there's nothing after this life. All right? So those who are inclusive says, oh, no, no, no. All religions are right, and so it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're insincere in your beliefs. And then exclusivism comes in and says, no, we can't all be right. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. And so we get pushback because we claim that we have the truth. 
and everyone else is wrong. And so religion is what says, is, this is, uh, it's, it's about what you do, and the gospel says it's about what has been done. That's the difference. So it's a scandal, uh, but let it scandalize you because it is logical. Not everybody can be right. Somebody has to be wrong, right? So we are betting that we are right, that Jesus is the only way. Yes, but don't, Greg, don't, don't you see how bigoted, how judgmental that is to which I ask people, so tell me, what do you believe? And how did you come to that conclusion? We say, well, all religions are true. My question is, well, which religion? The Ammonites who beat drums so their babies couldn't hear the screams of their babies or Jim Jones or whatever the religion do you want to talk about? And so we select ideas and which ideas are better among the others. So when you come to the moment of the most important question in our lives, let's pretend that all ideas are equal, that everybody's right, your truth is your truth, your path is your path. You see, that's cowardice. That's not enlightenment. That's taking the easy way out. I mean, if, if I say to people, you know what, man? It doesn't matter what you do, how you live. You know, just do your thing, whatever you want to do. Travel whatever path you want to. And in the end, it's all going to work out, and we're all going to ultimately end up in heaven anyways. So it really doesn't matter. That's the easy way. Who wouldn't love me? Right? Who wouldn't agree with that? Say, oh, man, all right, man, I'm going with Greg. I like that one. As opposed to coming to them in the face of the gospel where God says, no, uh, you have sinned against God and your, your sin against God has separated you from him. But, but God came up with a solution. His name is Jesus. And you, and you share the gospel. And then all of a sudden they jump back. And, well, what do you mean sin? Will you, will you, will you call me a sinner? What, what, what does that mean? You call me a bad person? And so people are going to push back, and they're going to be a little, little different, right? So do we want to settle for mediocrity? That's my question. The lowest common denominator and the ultimate cowardice is mediocrity. It's way easier. Listen, if, you're a, if you are a student in college and you're walking after Jesus, it'd be a whole lot easier to be in college and not walk after Jesus, right? Because Jesus is supposed to affect the way that we live and how we conduct ourselves and the way that we speak and the things that we do. And if I'm, you know, uh, if I don't have Jesus, I can do whatever I want and not feel guilty about it, not feel an ounce of guilt, and it really doesn't matter. But when I'm walking with Jesus and you put me in university and there are people challenging my faith and challenging my walk and watching me, you know, and, and seeing how I live and what I do and how I conduct myself, that's a whole different ball game. And so the search for meaning, which has been the central thing in cultures forever, you know, what, where's the logic behind it? What is going to give you fulfillment in life? What's going to bring you pleasure and delight? The ultimate motivating factor. Listen, following Jesus is the hard way. It's not a crutch. It's the hard way. It's like swimming upstream against society if you're going to actually live out the gospel. 
So in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said to his disciples at that time, you know what, I'm going to send you as sheep among the wolves. Do you know what wolves do with the sheep? He was a bad shepherd. No, he's giving them fair warning that when you take the gospel to the streets, you're going to get pushback. There may, there may be problems. There may be conflict. There may be persecution. You may even have to lay down your life for it. Because a, des- a domesticated spirit kills Christianity. You know, if we don't like something about God in our day and time, here's what we do. We just make our own God. We just construct what we want. And so that's what's happened in Christianity. It's like, you know what? Uh, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to get any pushback. I don't want any friction in my workplace. I don't want people to think bad about me. And so we allow them and we allow ourselves just to manufacture image God in our likeness. And in other words, we, we, we just kind of, you know, it's like a, a, a salad bar. We, we take a little bit of this of God and we take a little bit of this and we, oh, I want a lot of God's love, but oh, just a little tiny of his justice. And I, I want a lot of God's grace, man. Hot, heap on the grace, but, but God's righteousness and holiness, eh, let me just get one little pea here. Uh, and so it's like Build-A-Bear, right? You, you go and you just build the God that you want. And that, is, that flies in the very face of the very second commandment that God gave us. This is, not, this is not a new phenomenon. It happened all the way back with the nation of Israel. They wanted to build the God, and they wanted to select the attributes of God that they wanted and leave the rest behind. And so when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and they thought it was taking too long, uh, they said, well, we're going to build our God. We're going to build a God here. And, and so they took the jewelry that they had gotten from the Egyptians and they melted down the gold and they, they developed this calf that was because they needed strength. They needed strength. Moses wasn't there. And, uh, and so now Moses comes down off the mountain and he looks at Aaron and he says, Aaron, what in the world are you doing here? And I love Aaron's response. He just throws everybody under the buses. Well, I don't know how it happened. Uh, I just, you know, took everybody's jewelry. We just like melted it down to gold and like poof, all of a sudden this calf came out. And we had to worship it. Wow. See, we often elevate our preferences about God above God's statement about himself. And we don't let God be God. Let me ask you a question. How often does your God contradict you, confuse you, and make you mad? If you're not, chances are you're not really letting God be God. Because if you do, he will contradict you, he will confuse you, and he will make you mad. See, anytime you're in a relationship with a real person, they are going to confuse you, they're going to contradict you, and they're going to make you mad. That's called marriage. And so what happens in marriage is this, is that when you begin dating, you find out some things about this person you're dating, and then you, the psychologist tells you, begin to construct in your mind... Uh, things that you would like to believe about this person, although you don't really know if they're true or not, but you construct in your mind uh, this fantasy person uh, whom you are dating, and so you certainly know some realities about them, and then you fantasize about everything else, and then you come to the altar and you say, I do, and the first six months, eight months of marriage, now all of a sudden that image that you 
constructed of this person you married, you find out those things aren't right. And they begin to confuse you and contradict you and make you mad. And that's why most couples have a lot of marital problems in the first year. Because their imaging of this person that you've married, now all of a sudden reality sets in. We do the same thing with God. We try to make God just a little bit smarter than us, just a little bit higher than us, uh, just a little bit, you know, like, okay, God, I, I really need to be able to answer these questions. I need to figure these things out. And so uh, we live in this feel-right generation, but the same, you know, was true for previous generations. And we, and we construct God... To our liking. We know, for example, it felt right for some of our grandparents uh, that, that the races be kept separate. But we, we know that's wrong. We, it feels right to certain cultures where women are not allowed to be educated or to vote or, you know, they just kept in the home. And they, it feels right to them. But we would say, no, that, that's wrong. We know back with the Vikings, they, they did honor killings because it felt right. It felt like the only way they could even the score if someone insulted you. But that feeling was wrong. Why do we assume that we are the first generation in history uh, who, whose instincts are 100% reliable? I think that 100 years from now, when history books are looked back at our generation, they're going to find out that uh, we, our feelings were not quite as reliable as we thought they were. So my whole point is this. What was true of Israel can be true of us. We can focus on one of God's attributes and build our God the way we want him. And then when God does not come through as we expect him to come through, we get mad at him. And we question him. And we put him on the, you know, the witness stand. And we grill him. And so people are offended by the fact that they are, are sinners in need of a Savior, and sometimes we are offended by a God that doesn't meet our, our preconceived notions. You see, when you feel like that you have to have money and prosperity to be happy, you will invent a God who guarantees that to you. It's called prosperity gospel. When you see yourself as a good person better than others, we invent a God who is angrier at others who have sins that we don't deal with, but he's not angry at the sins that we deal with, right? So that's cultural Christianity. That's why we, you know, we, we pick out a sin, a particular sin, let's call say, homosexuality. And we, oh God, I'm so glad that I'm, I don't deal with that sin and I'm not that way. And so we, we down people who struggle with same-sex attractions as though they are greater sinners than we are while we are pushing our little sins under the covers, hoping that no one finds out about them. You've invented a God that does not exist. We really need family stability to be happy, so we invent a God who guarantees that, and we're angry if he lets something go wrong. Or we want to have unchallenged sexual freedom so that we can do anything and everything we want so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. So we invent a permissive God who is okay with it all, and that's the God of liberalism. Or we invent a God in our minds who says, if I obey God, then nothing bad will ever happen to me. If I just follow God's precepts, if I follow God's word, and I go to church, and I read my Bible, and I pray every day, that nothing bad is going to happen to me or my family or my children. And when it doesn't happen, that way we are angry with, with God. So what do we do? 
I put a lot out there for you to chew on. The answer to humanity's problems, the answer to your problems, is the gospel. Everything flows out of your relationship with Christ. Everything. How you face life, how you deal with issues, how you parent, how you be, you know, what kind of spouse you are, everything deals with Jesus. And to say that every religion is the same is absolutely false. Not every religion teaches the same thing about Jesus. There's great diversity. Buddhism teaches Jesus was not God, but he's an enlightened man like Buddha. Hinduism says that Jesus is an incarnation of God like Krishna. Islam says that Jesus was a man and a prophet, but was inferior to Muhammad. Jehovah Witnesses say that Jesus was merely the archangel Michael, a created being who became a man. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was only a man who became one of many gods and that he is a polygamist, I'm sorry, and half-brother of Lucifer. They don't tell you that in their material right up front. Scientology teaches that Jesus was an implanted force. None of those are portraits have any historical fact. And so Jesus came along and said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes unto the Father except by me. So you will either repent, and repent means to turn from all the things that you're trusting in to justify yourself before a holy God, all the things in the world that you look to for your joy and eternal significance and pleasure and identity that are not in Christ, whether it be money, sex, relationships, power, reputation, family, in knowing God, we find he must be our ultimate satisfaction and that once we drink of his grace, we will never thirst again because we'll never again go to the broken cisterns and drink from them, expecting them to give us eternal life. And Jesus said, you must believe, you must put your faith in him. You're putting your faith in his death and his burial and his resurrection. You're putting your faith in him and trusting him exclusively because he is the only one who has died for your sins. He's the only one who has absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. He is the only one who has stood in your place. And that's the invitation of Jesus to every human being. And so this is what the early church was sold out to. They were sold out to the gospel of Christ, and it didn't matter how much pushback they were going to receive. It didn't matter how much opposition they would receive. It did not matter how people might treat them or respond to them. They understood that there is value in the gospel and that it is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that a person can enter into a relationship with the God who created them. And so I close um, with this. this. These past few weeks, the world has lost two men of renown, uh, Billy Graham and Stephen Hawking. And both of them stood for and believed in certain things that were absolutely contradictory to one another. Billy Graham believed that in a creator of the heavens and the earth that we are not here by accident, we are not here by chance, but God has created us for his pleasure and for his purpose, and he desires a relationship, so much so that he sent his son into the world to die for us. Billy Graham spent his entire life preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Billy Graham was not always a favorite in other people's eyes. Not everybody looks upon him and says, oh, it's Billy Graham. I know a lot of people who think Billy Graham ought to be in hell. But Billy Graham never stopped doing what God called him to do, and that was to take forth the gospel of Jesus Christ and thus seeing thousands upon thousands of people to pour out of stadiums to give their life to Jesus. Contrast that to Stephen Hawking, who was a naturalist and an avowed atheist. He was fairly critical of religion, and here's what he once said, and I quote, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when it's when its components fail, there is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. So according to Hawking, when we die, we simply shut down and there is nothing. It is over with, zilch, nothing. You just cease to exist. Billy Graham believed the gospel. Stephen Hawking did not. Billy Graham spent his life Proclaiming the gospel, Stephen Hawking did not. Two men who dedicated their entire lives for an entirely opposite cause. One sought to bring the world closer to God through using God's creation and the creator in the greatest miracle, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the other. Now, these are two polar opposite worldviews. So there's a choice that everyone must make. Both of them can't be true. One of them is false. So I just caution you with this. Whichever worldview you adhere to, it's going to set your feet on a path, and every path leads to a destination. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it which leads you to the destination of eternal life with a God who loves you and created you and died in your place. Or you're going to set your feet on a path that leads to nothingness, and there's nothing in his mind that is out there beyond this world, and you just cease to exist. So choose very carefully what path you set your feet on, because every path has a destination. And if you and I are believers and adherents to the gospel of Jesus Christ, once you have discovered that truth, there are four things you have to do. You've got to believe it, You've got to act on it, you've got to stand upon it, and you've got to share it. That's the call of the church. Let's bow our heads. Father, we, we thank you, um, God, that we, we, we came to believe the gospel, but it wasn't entirely on our own. It was your Holy Spirit who enabled uh, us to hear and to see and to respond to your call upon our lives out of darkness into light, out of nothingness into a relationship. And Father, it is, it is the call that you've put upon we as the church. It is the call that was upon the early church that they were just sold out to. Father, I pray that we would be just as sold out in our day and time. That in every relationship we would bring to bear the gospel of Jesus at some point. For we believe it is the power of God unto salvation. Father, may you forgive us for our sin of silence.
thinking that just living righteous lives would be enough, but it's not. It's just not. May your Holy Spirit unstop our ears, open our eyes, open our mouths, loosen our tongues to be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ with whatever time we have left upon this earth. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who has never personally reached out and received the gospel of Jesus, that today they would come and they would repent of their sin and turn to Jesus and believe and trust in him alone for their salvation. God, may they take that step of obedience, that step of trust. May they cross that line of faith that you may, you may forgive and you may adopt and bring them into your family, bring them into your kingdom and equip them and, and indwell them with your Holy Spirit that they might truly walk in forgiveness and freedom through faith in Jesus Christ. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together uh, as we close out our time. And um, as you know, the, this altar is always open. I know that there are people on your hearts. Listen, I have family members. I have neighbors. I have people that I know that are, are far from, from Jesus and they need to hear the gospel again. And I'm not telling you to be um, uh, judgmental. I'm not telling you to go storming in there with your Bible and thumping them on top of the head and say, turn or burn or anything like that. It's, that's not the way. We are to love people. And through love, through love, acts of love, God will give you, if you'll pray for it, God will give you opportunities to share the gospel. But it's at that moment in time that you can't be silent, right? You, you can't, like, out of fear or out of apprehension or, well, it's just not me and it's not my personality. If you'll get the word out, you just get the first word out, listen, the Holy Spirit will carry you the rest of the way. It's just too important for us to remain silent. If you're here this morning, you've never asked Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, and you may have questions about that, you may have doubts about that, whatever it is, I'll be here at the front during this time that we're singing after the service, I'd love to talk to you. Again, if you're here for the, the pastor's luncheon right after the service, you'll make your way to room, uh, what I tell you, 104, um, and I'll meet you there in a few moments. So let's just lift up our praise to the Father for what he's done.